space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life, a new civilization, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Greetings, salutations, and welcome to Retrek. I'm Captain Jim, and with me, of course, is Admiral Elliot. Hi there. And this time we're here to talk about... We've got another hologrammy themed episode, and then we're starting something new, which we're quite excited about. And um, So we're finally going to look at the Dominion War. So we did quite a big series last time looking at the Temporal Cold War, but... This one's a really big one to take on, as I know, because I, I put together a list earlier today. and um, Yeah, I think it's going to take... Well, we'll probably be doing this in about two years' time, coming to an end. Yeah, I would think so. It's it's probably about... Because when we're looking at... With their discovery and Strange New Worlds and Picard breaking up things... Yeah, we're gonna, we've got us work cut out, but I think it was always going to be the case that... Unless we did it this way, we were hardly ever going to touch on DS9. Because we've done one or two here and there, but most of the meat of DS9 is somehow tied into this arc. And it's yeah. really difficult to just pick one out and focus on it without the, the context. So Yeah, it's it's worth, like, we're probably doing the definitive did it. Dominion wall digging to <laughs> Yeah, we we've been very, very thorough with it as um you'll find out in the second half of this episode when we're looking at an episode that to be fair has nothing to do with the Dominion Wall whatsoever. At least not officially, but we'll um we'll talk about why we're doing it when we get there. Before yeah. that though, really quick bit of Trek news because we don't know anything. Other than the fact that they've announced that a new film will be coming out in 2023. But that's it. Uh, yeah, they've said it's Star Trek in the Star Trek universe, they haven't have, they? Yeah. So that I I'm one I'm wondering because we got we heard that they're not going to do section thirty one till one of the other live shows comes to an end. Yeah. So it's. I think it's either Discovery is going to end after season five, mm -hmm. or Picard will just run for its three seasons. Yeah, and then one of them will be based on the movie. Oh, that'd be interesting. Maybe a final next gen film. Yeah, sort of a, a yeah. tie in to finish off Picard. That'd. I'd be happy with that. Yeah, a bit the... like uh, if if they can do it as much justice as. Um, Undiscovered country did for the exactly, original that, that's cast. What I was, was their sort say. of final final mission? Yeah, next gen never got the send off it deserved, really. So yeah, no. that'd be really interesting. Or even if it's something completely new, I'm I'm happy with it. It's nice that yeah, there's a if... film in development. I really like the idea that now that everything's under one roof and they're expanding out the Star Trek universe, that you know, you can start to do stuff like the Marvel movies and TV shows do and have that interconnectivity now. So that this could be really, really exciting. I mean, you could even do something crazy, have it like <clears throat> like the Avengers team-up of the Star Trek universe, you know. 
All you need is either Q getting involved or a temporal anomaly or something like that. And there's no reason you could... I don't think they would do this for the first film of this new batch, but, you know, there's nothing to stop you having Picard and Michael Burnham and Captain nope. Pike and just shove well, them all together I, in a film. I, I read an article I read an article this week and uh, there's speculation going that Strange New Worlds is going to be shown before Picard. And in one of the episodes of Strange New Worlds, it's going to be a Q episode that's going to link into Picard later. Oh, that'd be awesome. That there's, that they're going to be linked, that there's going to be a, a tie yeah, I mean, between you, the two. If you want to do it, if you want to have a thread through all the different shows, Q is the most obvious one to do. Because he can pop up in any of them and they could have some sort yeah. of arc built. And you could have it spin off into films. It's crazy. It's so good, though, that, like, you know, back when we started this podcast, Discovery hadn't even started airing yet. And we're here, like, two years later or whatever. And we've got more Star Trek shows than we can shake a stick at. And we're talking about movies <laughs> and interconnecting different shows. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, from Voyager, then, we're looking at Living Witness this week, which, uh, we'll be honest, we'll put our cards on the table. The reason we decided on this episode, we were talking about how Janeway could be a hologram in Prodigy. And we could both remember this episode, having the Doctor, and he'd been around for ages, and it was a backup version of it, but we couldn't really remember what, the ins and outs of the whole story were. So we thought we'd take a punt and see if this might be a way of potentially explaining Janeway. Spoilers, I don't think it is, but it's still a no, fun there's... hologram episode to look at. <laughs> yeah, so, it's actually a very good hologram episode. Yeah, it's great. I think, yeah, this is a really, really good episode. Um, so it starts off with basically evil Janeway. And... You'd be forgiven for thinking, oh, Voyager's doing the Mirror Universe finally, when we, you know, just from the cold yeah. open of this episode, she's got a very much more militaristic looking, not beating around the bush, a much more fascist looking version of the uniform. And there's it's yeah, all dim lights everywhere. Difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and she's hamming it up a little bit. She does a good job, Kate Mulgrew, in this one. <coughs> And, yeah, basically, we're, we're finding out, we're, we're seeing a different version of Voyager. And there's little bits like they've got a Kazon officer knocking about on the bridge. And two Vox ears are so much pointier than they usually are. Like, the yeah. serious, like, <laughs> goblin ear, like Yoda or something going on. And there's all this thing of the... I forget the names of the races, but the, the alien wants Janeway to help them wipe out this enemy or to, to give them assistance against this enemy. And Janeway takes it, like, to the extreme. She's like, no, well, we could fire on them, but we could use biological weapons. <laughs> Let's yeah. just go all out on it. And you've got the doctor there, and he's... He, I just noticed he had weird eyes, but we find out later in the episode it's because they think the doctor's an android rather than rather than a hologram. Um, so, yeah, it's this crazy sort of militaristic version of Voyager. It's almost like... Um, uh, and, yeah. like, uh, 
Voyager itself has been on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah, the Voyager with the, all the extra gear yeah, on we've it. Got, well, we've got, a, we've got a picture of the Voyager. Yeah, let me bring that up. So, um, yeah, it's, it is an interesting one. It's a good start-up. And I, yeah. I remember this version of Voyager because this is one that they sold us in the Eagle Moss collection. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you can pay yeah, again for well, the same model. And they've stuck Warship a, Voyager. And the Warship someone's Voyager. just stuck a load of their big cannons on it. Oh, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what they've done. Um, and, it, it, I mean, as we find out, you know, it's because they, they've got it wrong and everything. But, yeah, Voyager is not a, a warship. It'd look more like the Defiant if it was actually a warship. But, anyway. Um, so, they we then, you know, the other shoe drops pretty quickly. They don't string us along with what's going on and everything. We find out that it's basically a video, well, a, a holographic recreation in a museum 700 years in the future, which actually, that would put this more or less at the same time as Discovery, wouldn't it? Uh, no, it's... No? Be about... It'd be a bit earlier. Be a little bit yeah. Um, <laughs> but... Um... It does crop up where it will actually fall be, into Discovery. Yeah, it'd be just before the burn or something. Anyway. This um, would be about the late 29th century. Yeah. So it's this history lesson, and you get these quite cool bits, like where you've got the student asking questions about it, and they're like, oh, you know, how many people did they have? Oh, they had 400 soldiers. And they met the point of saying soldiers rather than crew. Yeah, and obviously. And they had uh, the d- <coughs> and the dissimilated bog and caves yeah, on. The, yeah, because the, that's uh, it. And like they, they make yeah, it out they dissimilated that Voyager, everyone on the way through. Yeah, Voyager's been going around kidnapping people and making them join their that, their fight kind of thing. Like I know that this species has got it wrong, and we all know they've got it wrong. But when you look at how much Voyager interfered in the Delta Quadrant on its way home, oh, yeah. there must be stories like this as quite a, a regular event that species have myths built up around them and false co- misconceptions. Oh, yeah, of what definitely. They are. I mean, it, it, this has been explored a little bit in Star Trek. In other ways, like the original series, we got loads of stories where the society had developed because of interference from the Federation earlier on, whether it was the gangster one or the Nazi one or the American Civil War one or, you know, they they, they went to that well a few times in TOS. Yeah. And like you said, there would be, there'd be all sorts of stories about Voyager. Like, it could almost be, on some planets, you can imagine it almost being like a Santa Claus thing. Like, you know, you know go to sleep because Voyager will bring you presents. Uh, and other planets, yeah, or almost, like... or almost godlike, <laughs> yes. So, like how, like you have all the ancient alien people on the History Channel, because obviously yeah. it's real history. So that's why the History Channel broadcasts it all <laughs> yeah, from now to real history. Now, <laughs> but you can imagine that there'd be a lot of planets that would have people talking like that about them. Yeah, you would think so. And like never you know... The benevolent aliens, there were gods from the sky. Or other versions like this, or, you know, versions where Voyager's yeah. like the bogeyman, like, you will go to bed, otherwise Voyager will come and get you, Captain Janeway, he'll shoot you or whatever, so... Yeah. And then we get the 
the version of Harry Kim and Chakotay. And Chakotay is like preempting Q with this. He's got the tattoo all over his face in this one. Yeah. It's obviously, <laughs> it was obviously something they were trying out with Robert Beltran. Like, you know, every every now and again, we'll, we'll see what, what you well, can do with a full face tattoo. Well, in a way, everyone, everyone <laughs> styled up as an extreme caricature yeah. of themselves. Yeah, exactly. Except for, as we discover later, Paris, who's actually... You couldn't dial him up anymore. <laughs> yeah, the doctor's just like, yeah, he's exactly the <laughs> same. And, um, yeah, the doctor himself in, in this version, he's like, well, I've got this hyperspray that can dissolve his optic nerves if we need him to talk <laughs> yeah. faster. Like, all right, yeah, calm down, son. And the idea of Seven of Nine, like, she's sort of like a Borg hit squad that she's got, basically. It's like yeah. she... She's just a weapon on the ship. It's like, right, we've got problems. Get Seven out there with a bog crew and they can do the dirty work. And then, yeah, you can assimilate a few more people now so you can carry on doing that. And it even extends to things like, and I think this is a really great little detail, like the way they say Chakotay, they don't have that O sound. They sort of go Chakotay. And it makes it sound more yeah. aggressive. It's it's much more clipped and much more rough sounding. Like hitting the K sounds really, you know, really abrasively. So I, I think that's a wonderful little detail. And they've obviously told everyone to do it. Um, it ultimately ends up then Janeway executes the the guys, the one of the species. And mercilessly, yeah, the leader of the species that are telling the story, and that's what gets us to this version in the future. And you go back to the museum; they've got a, a torpedo, and there's quite a good bit where he's like, "Well, don't touch that." And he's kidding, but he does say, "Like you know, that could destroy X number of city blocks or whatever." And yeah, was it uh, seven million people were killed? Something like that. Yeah. And um, the, you do get a bit where someone from the other species, and th this develops the theme of the episode, really, is they start to question whether the history is accurate. Like, how do we know this is exactly what happened? And he, the curator of the museum says, well, we found, we found this active thing now. We found this active log, which obviously turns out to be the Doctor. Well, yeah, yeah we, found, we found this device. And it's sort of like, like, this got me thinking, like, this is 700 years in the future. And they've obviously got certain things. Yeah. And this has remained hidden all that time and powered up. Yeah, it is a bit odd. And, like, why is it taking them 700 years to find it? And how did it get yeah. there? Because we see the true version of events later on, and I can't really see any point during that story where yeah. this would have ended up. You yeah. Know, I, it, I don't know. It, 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 it's, sort, it's sort of brushed off, isn't it? Yeah. It's sort of like, well, he must have stolen it. And, yeah, it's fine. It's it. We need it to get the, the story going. But it's interesting what he says at this point, because he says, well, if this does disprove this version of events, we will believe it. We will have to believe it. And ultimately, he's proved to be right, because he does accept it. 
But it raises an interesting question there of, well, do people believe New Proof when it comes to light? And I think that's very kind of pertinent for the times we're living in now. I think this episode resonates even more now than it did when it came out because we have... You know, the, the phrase fake news didn't exist when this episode came on. And alternative facts and, you know, yeah. all of this and revisionist history is something that is going on to a huge extent, uh, particularly online. And I think over the last year during the pandemic, it's spread even more because, you know, we've not had much to do apart from watch stuff on YouTube and, you know, watch stuff on the internet. And, you know, we wouldn't be broadcasting like this probably if there hadn't been a pandemic. So... I think the episode was good for its time, but I think it's even more interesting now with these ideas particularly. So, yeah, the data contains the Doctor then. And the first thing the guy says is, whoa, you're not an android? Hey, what's going on here? (laughs) And the Doctor, as you would expect from the Doctor, is really not happy about it. (laughs) He's not happy about... Yeah, he's... Yeah, how did I get here? And <laughs> which is fair. And why are you saying this about us? That's not true. <laughs> yeah, and that that's the thing. He starts off. He, his thing is, well, you've got it wrong, and I've got to, I've got to disprove it. But they're going to try him for war crimes, and <coughs> it's it's really interesting. Like, so you're going to try this guy who was an artificial life form that you believe to be an android, but he's actually a hologram, but you're going to try him for war crimes that happened 700 years ago. I mean, that in and of itself is an interesting idea. And I like how they have little bits, like when he says, uh, we were heading home, and he says, yeah, to Mars. And he's like, you couldn't even get that right. (laughs) But again, it makes you wonder where did they get that That makes me wonder how they got the name Mars, because... Like, I wonder if they managed to scan all of Voyager's um, database or something. Yeah, and then if they have scanned all the database, why did they get it so wrong? But yeah. maybe it's something to do with if Voyager was built at Utopia Planitia, um, so they might have worked it out as well. Voyager originated from Mars, so they probably originated yeah. from Mars. I don't, I don't know. I mean. It's silly anyway, really, that they always talk about getting home to Earth when you've got loads of different species on the ship, but I suppose the Earth is effectively the well, Earth is sort of like the centre of the Federation, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it it does make you wonder where they got Mars from. Um, So he watches, the Doctor watches this other recreation, and that's like you say where he sort of says, oh, well, Paris is the same. And I don't think that's entirely fair because Paris has never called Neelix a hedgehog in in the real world. No, but it, no, but they're all going on about chasing women and all that. And at this period, Paris was often yeah, chasing yeah. women around. No, it and was. the doctor had actually and the doctor had seen a lot of this from the time that Kes was on board Definitely. because he was always in sickbay chasing Kes. That's true. So the doctor has very first hand experience of actually. Paris does act like this. Yeah, he does. And, and there has been name calling between him and Neelix. Maybe not calling him a hedgehog, but... 
Yeah, yeah been definitely. Between them, so and the doctor has witnessed them as well. Yeah, and the doctor don't have the highest opinion of Paris anyway, so. Uh, but well, it was meant to be his nurse always absent. Yeah, he preferred Kaz, though. <laughs> uh, so the Doctor sets the record straight, and basically it, it, it flips it. So the other species, the Kyrian, were actually the aggressors. And the Doctor flat-out calls it at this point, like, this is revisionist history. And the curator does actually start to question it at this point, and... You have his version of like a personal log, and he's like, "Well, this is also it." Also brings up an interesting point, does that? That because the Doctor's species—I can't remember the name—but they turned out to have been the aggressors, but they won the war, mm. and they've and they've rewritten the history that they were the victims. Oh yeah, of the other species. And it's often and it is often said that history is written by the victors. Yes, no, exactly. I think that's exactly what we've got going on there. And, they, and they've done it, and they've sort of manipulated that to the extent that they've made this other species feel guilty about it, so that they feel subservient yeah. to them, and it's created this class system. And it is all built on this lie, but it's still. Interesting because neither of them's totally faultless. Like the the version that we actually get of events, somebody innocent still gets killed, and you know it, yeah. it's not absolutely clean cut. Which is, which, you know, a, yeah, like a, a lazy. All version. these millions of people, all these millions of people did die. Yeah, exactly, and. A lazier version of the story would have had outright goodies and baddies and it would have just flipped it over. But we don't get that. We get something much more interesting, much more nuanced than that. And um, the Doctor sort of offers, oh, well, I'll tweak the programme then and make it into the true story. And we get a replay of events. Not It doesn't sort of do it beat for beat like an exact recreation but you do get a couple of cool bits like it starts with Janeway looking out the window in the ready room but obviously it's totally different and she's in the right uniform and her hair's different like you said and we get it kind of played out again and the the ambassador guy's much more sort of humble in this version. He's like, oh, I've got to warn you that, you know, the, the Kyrians, we are at yeah, war with them and there might be problems. Well, you're best, you're best staying, keeping a distance. But but again, he's not played as an out-and-out goody because he does end up killing one of the, the Kyrian guys at the end of it. So it's it's interesting because they've sort of justified this whole thing by saying, well... Voyager did it. Janeway killed the Kyrian. But the the Kyrian was still killed without, you know, it it wasn't a case that in the true version he doesn't die or in the true version it's, yeah. it's an accident or anything. He is still killed. But I suppose the thing is that it it shows much more that the, there were two sides to it, I suppose, rather than... It just been much more one-sided, but yeah, I find I find that interesting that the ambassador guy is not totally innocent in the true version, 
yeah. even if he's not as much of a villain as they they make him out yeah. to be in the fake version. Yeah, it's like it's that truth within the lie, isn't it? Mm. That they've yeah they've put elements of the truth in there, but and it, it, I find like the the closing bits of it, I think, are really really interesting where. You have the people attack the museum and trash the museum and were were led to believe that this this is because people have heard about the doctor and people are questioning it much more and it's said that you know this is just a catalyst for it like th- this sense has been building for a while and that there has been some unrest anyway so it's it's not as simple as the doctor it, it's turned not, up it's not the it's not the cause is it it's sort no. of like and we it's get sort of like a, another spark. Yeah, like we, we get that going back to the beginning of the episode. The fact that you've got someone in the museum questioning whether this is real. So it's obviously the idea is there that we need to be questioning our history and checking if it's actually what's happened. And what the doctor says is really, really intriguing because. He says, well, look, I'll just delete my program because my presence is causing all of this problem and it's better to let people believe the revisionist history, to let them believe what they've always believed. And I find that really, really interesting because in a way you can sort of see the argument to be made, like, is the truth more hurtful than the lie will the truth cause yeah. more problems if it comes out and is it better to let people believe what from that perspective you could argue is a is a, a white lie or a good lie or whatever <clears throat> and it sort of speaks to like we were talking about <laughs> earlier on like the the mythology like the power of myth you know we we have all these, like, particularly like with us in English folklore, we have things like King Arthur and Robin Hood. And, you know, they didn't exist or they didn't exist in that Who form. Says? Well, but it's nice. <laughs> it, it's nice to believe that they might have done or, you know, to take it to another extreme, something like Santa Claus, which, you know, spoilers. But, the the idea of the myth of it and the the belief in it can be a great thing and i think it it very briefly they play with those ideas but ultimately the doctor decides no let's let's find this tricorder that proves it and let's go ahead with it yeah and then we get another twist which is that all of this has been a recreation as well and we find out that the Doctor paved the way for peace in this society. Um, yeah, and, and he, he went on to serve as the chief medical officer for, yeah. for both societies. And, and then ultimately he left to go and try and get back to the Alpha Quadrant and find his way home. Yeah, yeah they, they, let, they let him have a shift, which has, you have to assume that they have mobile holographic technology as well yeah. to have been able to do that for him and for how he's if he's been a chief medical officer for the society you have to assume that it's not just in one place he has to be able to get yeah, that i would imagine so so maybe they've made so another I, backup. I imagine i imagine that they've given him something like the mobile emitter 
Yeah. And the interesting point is here that they say that he, he was chief medical officer for another 200 years and yeah. then got homesick and wanted to head home. Now, that puts him in line with uh, Discovery. Yeah, yeah. So how interesting would that be? Se- could could so the doctor turn there's up? There's a chance that we could get the doctor arriving home in Discovery. Yeah, or Discovery could find him because Discovery's got a spar drive. So, the yeah, the doctor is out there or this version of the doctor is yeah. out there. But one last thing I wanted to to bring up with this is by the nature of the episode, we're being told to question these recreations. So I'm not convinced we can take what we see with the Doctor at face value either because that too could be a revisionist take on history. I mean, what we know of the Doctor and his character, the likelihood is that he's true. He, He acts the way that he does. But I think just the nature of the episode invites us to question that and say, well, how do we know that this is any more true? Is his final scene even accurate? Yeah, is his final scene even accurate? And, you know, if you want to take it much more sort of, you know, to a, a meta level going further and further, it's like, okay, well, that might not be true, but the representation that that video is showing of the previous society might not be true. So it could be propaganda saying, well, look, they tried to trick you by showing you all this stuff about Voyager, so we need to keep them as an underclass now because they tried to do that and our hero, the Doctor, had to come and save us. And you could just end up with, like, like Russian dolls, you know, this species, the team going back and forth and back and forth well, by accusing well, each we other don't of... actually know. we don't actually know how far in the future the final lot are, because they're no, talking about no. events that happened 200 years after, sort of like, the main story takes place. Yeah, exactly. But they're talking about it as being well in the past. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really interesting one. I think that I do think that's a real standout episode. That one, I was a big, big fan it's of a, that one. Yeah, it, it it it's one of those that you don't jump to straight away when you're looking for episodes to no. rewatch. But when you rewatch it, you sort of yeah, that's bloody. And the thing is, that's like, really clever. A lot of the time, and I'm guilty of it, probably more than most people. Is like I. You can dismiss Voyager of, oh, well, they were just doing the same thing as TNG did. and But it does now and again pull out one like this where it's just the concept is just brilliant. The execution's spot on. Yeah. It's a really good piece but, of TV. And, and it's true of that is Voyager. There is a lot where they just do what we've seen before. Yeah. But they and can also... To be fair, DS9 did it a lot oh, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. its first season. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of DS9's first season then, so this is our start of the Dominion War, and those of you listening, hearing me say first season, are probably thinking, what are you talking about? So, we're actually going for episode four, I think, of Deep Space Now, five, if you count Emissaries two. We're starting with Captive Pursuit, and this is because... Basically, it's the first time we get a species from the Gamma Quadrant, but also, these are so blatantly a forerunner to the Jem'Hadar 
that yeah. it, it had just not been right not to cover them. And I, I say this quite often when there's gaps in the Trek continuity, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a book or a comic or something that folds these species into the Jem'Hadar somehow, like... Yeah, like, it's a, well, the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta. Yeah, You can exactly. see both of them in this episode. Yeah, and, there's... And, like, I remember when this, I remember when this was first round, and the Hunters, and we never find out what the species <laughs> no, is no. called. They just call the Hunters. But there was a, they were... In all the trailers and that, and they definitely you almost were, get yeah. the like you get the idea that they had these big ideas of where they wanted to go with DS Nine, but they weren't developed at this point. Yeah, and it's I, I and you am... sort of put some of the ideas out there, and then they thought, no, they're not the species that we want to be using eventually. But there's bits of what we've given these species yeah. that we want to take. And... There's definitely things in there that we see further down the line. So, <laughs> this one then, and this this shows that we're early Deep Space Nine before we've fully settled into where we're pitching the characters, because we have a Dabo girl complaining to Cisco about Quark effectively sexually harassing her, and... Maybe it's because uh, she'd signed. She'd signed up she for it. I have no sympathy for it. <laughs> she had a contract and she didn't read it. That's yeah. That's, she was making a contract with a Ferengi. That's certainly one take on it, and I think this is one of the ones where we see how society has changed a bit. Because even though Cisco's not happy about this, and he's saying there's no way you're going to have to honour it, it's still almost played off as, oh, that's Quark. And I don't yeah. think we'd <laughs> do that joke now. I don't think you would have a main but, character who you can hand wave away this. But And well, I don't think they the do it quite later. The thing is, though, that it, it's showing them as... It's showing that... Like, the Ferengi were, were still a lot of development to do. Like, we'd seen them in TNG, and DS9's Ferengi moved completely away from that. Oh, yeah, and this is very early days. But, yeah, but they had been established as, like, the male... It's predominantly a male society. Mm-hmm. And we still see throughout DS9 that the women are, are, lower, are, are lower. They're not allowed to... Joining business, not allowed to wear clothes, and the Ferengi do see women as a lower. Yeah, they definitely species. do. And this is actually this is setting all that up for the future. Yeah, but I think what I'm getting at is the difference is that Quark is still a character that we're meant to sympathise with, and we're meant to like, and we're meant to enjoy. And I think this is a bit much seen from 2021 eyes. I, I don't think we'd have quite gone there. And I, I don't think they'd have done it with Quark later in the series either. But what, what I do, I like Cisco's line where he gets cut off. And it's one of them where you're like, I'd love to know what the end of that line were going to be. Because he says, I will make sure that he doesn't hold you to this provision concerning the exchange of... And then it 
bodily fluids. Well, it's sexual favours. Of course it's it is. Sexual favours, and it's just. But I want and, and it's and it's established. I'm sure it's established later on that it's actually a, a standard part of a Ferengi. Oh yeah, concept yeah. That a Ferengi would hand out. I just wonder what it, the, it isn't like. Quark's been sleazy. Quark Quark is just being. Yeah, he is just being Ferengi, but I just wonder what the exact wording was going to be. Like, would it have been exchange of sexual favours or exchange of bodily fluids? Or, you know, what, what was I, the wording? Well, I always thought it was sexual, fla- sexual favours. But, yeah, luckily Cisco doesn't get to finish the line, so we never find out. And, yeah, we get the ship coming through the wormhole then, and we get Tosk, who looks very lizardy. He looks very stressed out at this stage. And (coughs) they decide that O'Brien's going to go meet him. And I think this is is indicative as well of the early days of DS9 that they were just getting a sense to who the actors were, who the characters were, what their strengths were. And they've realised that O'Brien's a good one as your everyman character. He's a good one as your relatable character. And you you can tell this is very O'Brien because you get two O'Brien episodes back to back at this stage. So <laughs> they were obviously comfortable writing for O'Brien, maybe because he'd had all the background he'd in TNG, a... so the writers knew him yeah. a bit better. And well, probably a lot to do with it. Like it wasn't it it as Q says in the next episode after this one. Oh, you were one of the little people. Yes. But we we did see quite a lot of O'Brien. Yeah. And um, O'Brien then, he goes to Tosk's ship, and Tosk's ship looks suspiciously like a Vulcan scout ship, but with a different, a bit of a different paint job. (laughs) So maybe there's a thing about... You're not saying that they'd kick bash, are you? (laughs) Not at all, and I won't be saying that later on either when we get to the the Hunter's ship, but we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. And then, so we've had the first similarity to the Jem'Hadar is the lizard-like appearance. Then we get that Tosca's got some sort of personal cloaking device, which is... Yeah, he's turned himself invisible. Yeah, that's another Jem'Hadar thing. And O'Brien, this is a weird line, where he says, oh, well, you know, you get all sorts of weird things on ships, maybe even people who can make themselves invisible, hey, hey. But either he knew that Tosk had done that, or he's just... It's a stab in the day. Well, he's I, making I, a joke, yeah, but it's very fortuitous. It, well, his message, his message back to Opson gone, have you beamed him out because there's no one here? And they say, no, his life signs are definitely still there. So, yeah, okay, so maybe he's actually so, been literal. So O'Brien is aware that he's there, he just can't see him. Right, so okay. I, I think it. I think O'Brien's making that comment is quite reasonable, right? And I, he's just trying to make Tusk feel feel comfortable about him being there. Like, sort of, O'Brien's aware that he's made himself invisible. Obviously, he's, he's wary of O'Brien, but it's not an issue. O'Brien knows he's there, but he's just going to keep trying to um, fix his ship. Maybe, yeah. And I like the way O'Brien likes constantly calling him friend and. He's trying to put him at ease and he's trying to bond with him over, you know, tell me about your ship and what's this bit and everything. Yeah. And then So I could fix it. Yeah. And you get sort of 
a bit of a contrast with Tosk, who all of his language shows what kind of species he is, really, because he, he goes to, like, the military side of it. He's like, what's this station for? Is it defence? Is it surveillance? And it's showing that he yeah. thinks in those terms. He thinks in terms of, of conflict. And we also find out he only needs 17 minutes of sleep a day, which is pretty good. Uh, Manny says per rotation. We don't know how short their rotations are. <laughs> it might, you know. Yeah, well, I think we generally look at rota- uh, rotations uh, yeah, in we're the 20s assuming. to 30 hours. Yeah. We don't... Like... He could live on a planet like that's like Venus that does one rotation mm-hmm. a year. And, so yeah, and he only needs... broke down into 24 hours and all that, and he has 17 minutes in, and it could be actually he sleeps for weeks and weeks when he's could, you know, yeah. calculated out the difference. Yeah. And um, the you get this bit here where I remember what you're saying about how they, how they bigged up like these were, making it look like these were going to be the baddies, where... Where Tosk says, show me where the weapons are kept. I remember that being in the trailers all the time for this episode. Yeah. And... Yeah, there were, like, there was there definitely... How these... The trailers, when DS9 first started, and I've still got the video, my video of um, Emissary, uh, the special edition when it first came out, and yeah. it has a big trailer for stuff. And there was lots from this episode. In oh, it. I remember them trailers that were on the VHSs. They were great. I hope like they've preserved <laughs> them somewhere. I know you've got your copy, but yeah, I hope they're on YouTube or something. They were great fun, or as special well, features on the DVDs or whatever. I know you have. Yeah. Um, Maybe I should uh, convert them and uh, put them up on YouTube. There might be people. Yeah, the trailers. People. I think if people, people want to see some of the old trailers from DS9 videos. Say because I've got all of them and I'm quite yeah. happy to upload. I like the one that they had. Until I get in trouble for it. <laughs> I like the one that they had. I think it was just before DS9 came out, and it was this big montage one for like all of Star Trek, and it had like scenes that were intercut from different things. Like it, it had some bit where it goes, and then it went further into the future with the next generation, and it has a clip of Kirk going, "I guess we weren't sufficiently entertaining." <laughs> <laughs> and they almost have like them sort of talking to each other like Kirk will say something they'll have a scene of Picard going agreed uh, yeah yeah they were great yeah. fun the thing is when on VHS you did actually used to watch the trailers because it was too much hassle yeah. fast forwarding and, and half the time that. the fast forward didn't actually really fast forward it you were just watching it with no sound <laughs> yeah yeah in, in speed in sped up terms yeah very weird uh, so O'Brien knows Tosk is hiding something. He talks to Cisco about it, but they carry on fixing his ship. And there's a good bit where, like, Tosk's obviously really eager to get going. Uh, but O'Brien's like, well, I can't send you out like this because I'll get a bad reputation. You know, my, I'll get a reputation yeah. for shoddy work on the other side <laughs> of the galaxy. The, the thing is that O'Brien probably is worried about getting... He's probably oh, yeah. in there that he is worried about getting a bad reputation. That's the thing you get... O'Brien's probably got half an eye on like, oh, well, I could go work for someone in Gamma Quadrant. You know, I'm not tied <laughs> down to Starfleet. But, but this does uh, come back, doesn't it, in late, in much later episodes than it's commented on. Yeah. Don't ever underestimate Starfleet engineers. Oh, definitely, yeah, and especially and O'Brien. The Kardashians say it, and the, I think the Vortas say it. Yeah. 
It is well known, don't underestimate Starfleet engineers. Well, that... let's be honest. I mean, there's no Star Trek series where they wouldn't have all been dead within a couple of episodes if it hadn't been for the engineer. It's They are the one who holds yep. it all together. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, then Tosk says, like, you know, I, I live the greatest adventure when they're talking about, like, rest and relaxation. And yeah. we, we don't find out what it means yet. But... There's a really good scene in Ops where um, they're all sort of spitballing ideas, blah, blah, blah. And I think you get a really, really early hint of where the relationship between Bashir and O'Brien's going to go. Because Bashir says, like, oh, why don't you bring him down to sick, babe? And O'Brien just cuts him off and carries on talking to Cisco. Like, <laughs> he won't even... <laughs> entertain Bashir talking and Bashir looks a little bit well, put out by it. You, well, you do have this, don't you, that for a long time, O'Brien didn't want to know Bashir. No, he didn't at all. But Bashir was determined that they'd be friends. Yeah, and I, I, you know, we'll we'll see a lot of it during the, the Dominion arc, but I do think the relationship between Bashir and O'Brien is one of the best ever on TV one of the greatest... It's one of the best ever built built up over yeah, time now. The, the arc it goes through and just the representation of a male friendship, which I, do, I think is something we don't see that often on TV, particularly going yeah. back to this era. You either usually get, if they're going to establish two male characters as friends, you either start the show with, hey, these guys are best friends, or they hate each other or whatever, you know... You, it's rare you see this develop the way they do with these two, which yeah. is great. We also get um, one of Odo's shapeshifts in this episode, which, to say that was... Because that was another thing they really bigged up in the trailers for DS9, was look at the shapeshifting guy, and he does this well, and he does that, but you don't actually see well, it that if you often. Think it, it was... a. Uh... It was a massively expensive effect yeah. oh, for TV. Yeah. Like, like we'd have, I'm trying to think how much, how long after uh, Terminator Two this would be where we had shape the shape shifting. Yeah, not too long. Terminator, and but that had been like major movie budgets, and you didn't and to do something like that on TV at the at the time this was made was bloody hell, the and it was serious money. Yeah, no, absolutely. And but that, that's you can what... see that a lot in a lot with DS9 that you'll have these, you'll have um, episodes where there'll be loads of effects and all sorts going mm. on, but then you'll have probably three, four episodes with no real effect work at all. Yeah. Just character stories, and it was literally how they had to spread the budget out to do the effects. And with Odo, I think, as well, they wanted to do it more in the early days so that you could get used to the character as he's a shapeshifter, he can do this. But then as the character's more and more developed, you don't need to show it as much. You know, it's, yeah. it, the, the gimmick isn't necessary kind of thing, but we do get him pretending to be a painting at this point. And... Tosk is wanting to die with honour, he says to O'Brien at this point, and that's when the hunters turn up. And the hunters' ship looks Well, so we've had a you've like we have a before they turn up we have him so, O'Brien taking Tosk around the station 
And I think it's quite uh, interesting when he goes and meets uh, Quark. Oh, yeah. It is, uh, O'Brien insists on calling him Barkeep. Oh, yes, yeah, and there's and, a great scene with Quark, him. Quark getting upset, I'm not a Barkeep, I'm your host. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's some great yeah, stuff but then but then Tosk apologises to Quark for not having any vices that he can explain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. And the hunter's ship then looks suspiciously like the ship from the TNG episode Haven, but without the big swirly dome thing on it. That's what I think it looks yeah. like. Um, and yeah, the hunters turn up. Again, very Jem'Hadari. The guns kind of look like Jem'Hadar guns, and um, the 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 go straight through Federation shields, not the shield out straight away. Yeah, exactly. And the facially, they're not a million miles away. It's not not bang on, but if you cross Tosk with a hunter, you'd pretty much have a Jem'Hadar. Throwing a couple yeah. of spikes as well, but um... no, I I wouldn't. I like there's a line in this, and um, like O'Brien's Irish, so he's a British actor, so he'll have grown up watching Doctor Who. Yeah, and like when the hunters fire at the station, and the shields go down, O'Brien goes, "Oh, they've reversed the polarity." Ah, yes. And I wonder if it's Classic. that because you did you, like it's well known at the time. Of like TNG DS9 and that with with, with the script writers or and that they just put like lines like techno babble yeah that they had to come up with something and I wonder if O'Brien's just seen it and just said something yeah I wonder like, oh, what it, he's grown up with because I just thought straight away that's John Pertwee oh, it is John Pertwee O'Brien had been O'Brien had been the right age to have grown up with yeah. John Pertwee. I mean, for, for anyone who's not familiar with the John Pertwee era, if you imagine everything that the Doctor does now with a sonic screwdriver, instead of that, it was reverse the the polarity. Yeah. And that would I've, be your answer. He reversed the polarity of everything. Everything, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it could well be. It could be the writers just dropping a little bit in then. Um, but, yeah, it's very carefully chosen. Yeah, it's a nice little Easter egg. Yeah, absolutely. And I like the bit with Odo during this sequence where he he has like a matter of pride. He's like, I'm not letting someone get taken from my brig. Yeah. Like, even if he's guilty or whatever, if he's my prisoner, I'm responsible for his safety. He's my prisoner. Yeah, and I really like that. That plays into what, how Odo is later on. And then ultimately they, they've got their... Kind of like the Predator where it changes its viewing modes. They, they've got an invisible seer thing that they can use so yeah, they can find Yeah, it's got a scanner so they can detect them being invisible, which sort of like, well, if you're hunting them and the, one of the defences is they can turn invisible, but you can see them when they're invisible, well, what's the point of It makes you wonder invisible? why they're Maybe it's a thing that... Maybe the Tosks developed it and then the Hunters developed the technology as a response to it. I don't know. Cause we, we, mm. we don't know what the rules of this hunt are. Or, you know, We know it's been going on yeah. a long time. Um, so may, maybe it is a thing that the Tosks developed it as a survival mechanism. I don't know. I like that the Hunters well, really I don't think that because like, you do have when Cisco's talking to the head hunter, the chief hunter, 
and he says that, and he and he goes, well, we used to have blood spots, and we'd uh, hunt lower species, but we wouldn't hunt anything sentient. Yeah. And the hunter goes, yes, but we bred them that way. We created them for this. Yeah. And to me, that's just like, that's the Gemma Dan, the Vorta. Yeah. And the been... founders, like, the and all this genetic breeding to be something. Yeah, they've been created for a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And... The hunters so like they've obviously created them with the ability to shield. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, so the hunters really disgusted that Tosk's been captured, and they talk about the the crew talks about what can they do? Can they offer him asylum? And ultimately, he refuses it because he wants to die with honor, like he said earlier on, and. So yeah, he, he doesn't... Well, Cisco says that he'd have to ask for it. Yeah, that's I the thing. I can't just give him it. He has to request asylum. Yeah, and then you get this great follow-up with Quark now and uh, O'Brien where he goes there, and Quark's trying to give his, his barkeeperly advice and O'Brien's <laughs> just saying, I don't want it, but it's Quark saying... Oh, actually, O'Brien talks himself into it. Quark doesn't actually do anything. Yeah. O'Brien just says, oh, suppose you just change the rules. That's it, change the rules. And then he says, thanks, barkeep. (laughs) And I love that bit where Quark goes up to the other guy. He's really happy with himself, and he sort of puffs his chest up. (laughs) He's like, so what's bothering you today? (laughs) He's clearly so proud of himself that he's given this advice. And this is shown all the way through DS9. Quark had that um, opinion of himself. Oh, that yeah. he could solve any problem, that he was the, like, he, he was the, he was the goody in it. Oh, in yeah, yeah. Science, he was the, he was the, <laughs> the main goody in DS9. Yeah, and he often does solve problems, so he's not always wrong. Um, so O'Brien sabotages the security scanners, and this is, you were talking about how they do effects, then they save money, so... This sequence of O'Brien disabling these security scanners in sequence, I think they use this two or three more times just this season in different episodes. Um, But, yeah, so he's done that, so Tosk can escape. And then there's the bit where Odo says, well, I better get down, and Cisco, hang on, no hurry. So No no hurry. And then... (laughs) René Aubergenois does that brilliant thing where he just walks the slowest you've ever seen anybody walk out of Ops. <laughs> and he turns around really slowly into the turbo lift and everything. Well, well this has always got me. Like, the, we know how turbo lifts move really fast around places, but look how slow that lift always moves. It does. Ops. As it goes out and of it has nothing properly on the And it has nothing properly to seal you in. No, it's a weird. That turbo lift is weird. I mean, I suppose. Yeah, I wonder if it. I wonder if it's like that, and then it moves down into a tube. Maybe. Or, like an, like it goes into a capsule, and then it can fire then off it, really fast. But see, I'm not sure because I think I think in the first episode with Loxana, where Odo and Loxana are caught in it, I think you see a view of the inside of it, and it is just the wall. Um, yeah. I, might, I might be wrong. It's a while since I've watched that one. Yeah, it's really weird for... Well, from safety point of view, if it's going really fast around the station, 
Oh yeah, definitely. If you stuck your hand out, hand on the yeah, wall. exactly. Boom, <laughs> be up there. It'd be like thingy, wouldn't it? Total recall. Like, so you're the party director. It snaps his arms off. Um, yeah. So I uh, just remember the line that the lead hunter says, where um, the they're saying, you know, you're not going to take him, blah blah blah, and he's really shocked. He's like, over this tusk, and I think. Yeah, it's it, a great like it, the way he delivers it is brilliant, but but it's like you were saying it ties into the fact that they don't see the Toscas anything more anything more than an animal. I mean, e- even you know, obviously we're not going to get into the politics of hunting animals for sport and things like that. You know, and I don't agree with it myself. Yeah, I know a lot of people like, don't, but the 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 created like the basically. Like they said, they've genetically created them, so they create this species. Yeah. Purely to hunt. And so it's inconceivable to them that they could have any other rights other than that. And I find that yeah. interesting, but it doesn't do him any good anyway, because Tosk takes out the lead hunter anyway, and he gets away. He says, Die with honour to O'Brien, so they, they sort of part as friends. And. Well, it tells O'Brien that he is now Tusk. Yeah, he does. Yeah, that's great. See, why didn't they do a follow-up where the hunters are after O'Brien or something? You know, that would have been interesting. Well, just to, just to <coughs> see this species again. Yeah. And, and it's obvious, and this is why I think it's so obvious that they had ideas of where they wanted to go yeah. with the Gamma Quadrant. And they had ideas what they wanted to do with the species. And they did this episode... And there's a lot of things that you can see that are taken forward, but they decided these were the actual species. Yeah, they've that they not quite nailed seasons. it. Yeah, and there's a great ending scene with Cisco and O'Brien, and O'Brien basically admits it, but then Cisco, in turn, pretty much admits to O'Brien that, yeah, we let you get away with it. So, <laughs> yeah, well, and it, it's, but I think that's. I think that's a very Cisco thing, isn't it? It is, it's definitely. We've, seen with other captains as well, where they know what the crew member's doing is wrong, but they agree, and they've got to sanction them or reprimand them for it at the end, but they agree with what they're doing. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, he's one of them, and Cisco does do it a lot. Cisco does a lot of bollocking his, his crew, much more so, I think, than any other captain. <laughs> Particularly in, like, season four when Worf comes into it, every other episode seems to finish with Cisco bollocking Worf and teaching him how to be a better commander, but we'll get on to those in in due time. (coughs) So, just before we wrap up the episode then, I... I, This is my headcanon for where these guys fit in with the Jem'Hadar. I think... These are an offshoot of the Jem'Hadar that have developed their own society. And because the Jem'Hadar are bred for war, that's why they've developed this game and this hunting yeah, and things like I, that. Yeah, I, yeah, almost like maybe an early experiment of the founders. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe that's they it. Haven't quite got it. They hadn't quite got the genetics where they wanted to. Yeah, an earlier version, so they've just cut them off and let them go off and form their own society. And, yeah, something like that, because there's too many similarities for there not to be something. And 
Star Trek fans, we like to invent our own headcanon and fill in the blanks and everything. We so often have to invent our own headcanon. That's very true as well. So that that's my take <laughs> on it anyway. So No, yeah. I'm happy with that. So I think I think this is a good early episode of Deep Space Nine. There's some clunky yeah, ones in uh, season one, but this is a good one. And I think I think we've explained ourselves why we've included this yeah. in you now. I think we're, we're and I know that other, I know that other Dominion War arcs people have done don't go this far back, but I think it's worth ex- you have to look at some of the other Gamma Quadrant species. Yeah, you do, and you know, don't worry, like, we're, we're not going to do move along home because they're definitely not connected to the Dominion War. We might do that. <laughs> yeah, we. In other circumstances, probably we'll do that. Yeah, we're missing that one out. During the um, same drinking session we I do think Spirit There's an interesting thing. part, like, right at the start of this episode, when uh, Tosk first comes through the warm, wormhole, immediately Cisco puts the station on yellow alert. Yeah, yeah. So even that early... They're worried about anything coming through the wormhole. Well, yeah, which you'd have to be, wouldn't you? So at this stage, we haven't got a clue what's in the Gamma Quadrant. You know, we, we've yeah. not... And we're just letting ships go through there. Yeah. Explore, go do what you want. Yeah, it's, uh, maybe that'll come back to bite them, as we, uh, we might find yeah, out. In, um... it's like it's like O'Brien says to Tusk, there's um, six or seven ships a week going through. yeah. It's weird that there's six or seven ships, but at this point in the series, apart from the very first time in the very first episode, we haven't the crew the crew hasn't gone back through. I think very no. briefly they they go into the wormhole in in the second uh, in the second or third episode past prologue, but that's because somebody's nicked a runabout. But I don't think we go back to the Gamma Quadrant for a couple of episodes yet. So, yeah, interesting. No, it, 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 it's a funny one because with the wormhole, because it was like I know how important it does become late, later on. But there was a big deal about it in the emissary and mm. all that, and then we forget about it for quite yeah. a way into season one. When you look back at it, yeah, we don't do a lot and of obviously they were de- obviously they were developing the characters, etc. Mm. But there's a lot of episodes just built just on the uh, station. It does make you wonder in some instances whether the scripts were scripts that had been hashed out for TNG and they'd gone. We can we can do a rewrite on that and make it into a DS9, so they don't feature yeah, the world. And it's that thing that you come back to that we you've always got to come back to with uh, Star Trek and other TV shows from the time was budgets. Oh yeah, that like um, emissary was done on the the budget they used was like making a small movie. Yeah, it yeah. was massive for the for the time it was made. So you you do have umpteen episodes where they probably. Yeah, you can't go into space or to another planet. For yeah, a few definitely. Weeks. I mean, they've spent. We've a, done that. <laughs> they've spent a fortune on the set of Deep Space Nine. I mean, just the set of the Promenade is it's yeah. huge. Oh, it's huge. It's bigger than it's anything we've set. had on TNG. But anyway, so um, yeah, that about wraps us up for these ones. But um, 
we'll be back next time. We haven't decided what we're going to do because next time is our 100th episode. So yeah, we're, we're not, yeah. we, haven't, we haven't quite decided. We'll have to do something special. Um, but yeah, we'll, I think we should do something special yeah, for our we'll, 100th anniversary. We'll work something out. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter at RetrekPod. You can email us, RetrekPod at gmail.com. Come and join us on Facebook. Just search for Retrek. You can check out Elliot's videos of his TOS Enterprise that he's building on the YouTube channel. Um, or you can always... And my test uh, videos, and my test videos of uh, Voyager's phases. Yeah, exactly. Cracking on with it now. And, uh, yeah, I'm doing some clever things with LEDs. <laughs> But thanks for trekking with us this time, and we'll see you next time on the retrack. Thank you. Bye bye.